0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney.
2: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're featuring a series this month called 2019 A Look Ahead. We're going to discuss China right now. It's the second biggest economy in the world, and it's in the midst of a trade war with the United States that's starting to have a real impact. This week, Apple reported that Its uh, iPhone sales were lower than expected in China. Auto sales also declined in the country, the first retreat for that sector in two decades. And numerous other companies are pulling back on their growth forecast as well. The U.S. and China called a 90-day ceasefire on imposing new tariffs that started in December and have announced that they will hold ministerial-level talks in Beijing next week. If no agreement is reached by that March deadline, the U.S. could proceed with new tariffs and China would likely retaliate. So where is China headed in this new year? Minwan Zhao, who's an associate professor of management here at the Wharton School, joining me in studio. And on the phone, Jacques Delil, professor of law and professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also director of the Center for East Asian Studies and deputy director of the Center for the Study of Contemporary China. Minwan, Happy New Year to you. Thank you for coming in. Happy New Year. Thank you. Jacques, great to have you with us. Great to be here. Happy New Year. Thank you. So where do you think we we are with China? And obviously the relationship, one is still very much in flux. We still have to get through all of these trade issues. But from an economic side, some of the data is showing maybe a little bit more weakness than I think some people were, were expecting.
0: Well, China is certainly weakening, uh, both for internal and external reasons. We know the tariffs are weakening a lot of the export sector. But more importantly, it's poking the bubble um, that has been have been building uh, since 2008. So because of the stimulus package, what you see is a lot of investment in real estate, in infrastructure construction. In the so-called, you know, virtual uh, world, and and I'm doing a literal translation from the Chinese phrase, uh, is facing a reality check. So, you know, it's bad. The data look really bad and uh, it's weakening. But on the other hand, I also heard a comment saying Thank the trade attention for poking all the, uh, the bubble and get China back to reality,
2: and, 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 uh, which
0: in the long run may not be a good, a bad
2: thing. Which is interesting because when you say that you know that it, it does not look good, mm-hmm. they're still talking about potential growth of over six percent, which for a lot of countries would be phenomenal. Right. But with where China has been and the expectation of being maybe closer to seven percent, right. you're, you're coming in under under level.
0: Right. And there's a lot of speculation what the 7% really represents.
2: Correct. Right. Jacques, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we're seeing as a lot of indicators of a serious slowdown in China. Some of them are, as Yan said, domestic. Uh, we've seen slowing consumer confidence. Uh, we've seen just the inevitable fact that growth does flatten out in a country that isn't growing as fast as China has for so very long. Um, and, you know, some of these things are just plain old cyclical. Some of it reflects reforms that I think it's generally agreed are necessary but have not been implemented to take the next steps toward market-oriented reforms. Uh, And I think we will see some attempt to deal with the weakness in domestic demand. There is another stimulus package, a sort of lowering of the reserve ratio requirement for banks to stimulate lending. Uh, There's going to be a fiscal stimulus, perhaps as much as $200 billion. Those sorts of things, which we've seen China do before when demand weakens. The downside of that is, even if it works, in a sense, it creates some of the problems Minyan was just talking about. That is, it can create speculative investment. It can create a new problem with bad loans. So they're walking a fairly familiar tightrope there uh, we're now talking six and a half percent. as probably a higher number than actuality. As you say, that's a great number for most countries. But for China, it's not what uh, people have gotten used to. And of course, as we've talked about many times this show, it's a regime that still lives to a significant degree on economic performance legitimacy. So when that slows down, people get worried. Well,
2: Jacques, then when you look at, at what I I think the president and and his administration would like to see in terms of developing some sort of new framework for a deal uh, and some of the changes that, as you said, we've discussed that that really need to happen around intellectual property and other issues. uh, Does it really not fall into the lap of President Xi to really start to to drive some of that change if he doesn't want to see further issues in, in his own country?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think there are really sort of two pieces to the quite formidable policy challenges that she faces on the economic side. One is the domestic demand, which we've just been talking about, and there there's a tension between going through with some promised painful market-oriented reforms and tilting the playing field back in favor of uh, entities other than large uh, and state-linked enterprises, and that's been Uh, In the promise, uh, in the list of promises since early in the Xi regime, but it's been hard to push through. One of the things that's come through just in the last few days is they've talked about how to deal with the problem of slowing growth, not just the stimulus, but also to particularly target that towards the small and medium enterprises, which are a great source of job growth and the kind of entities that benefit from reforms. That's the internal side. The external side is dealing with the U.S. Uh, and dealing with the external uh, demand decline. And some of that, again, is just inevitable. A country with an economy the size, of, the size of China's can't continue to grow through exports. They know that. But many of the strategies that are still essential to a an economic strategy that's still relies deeply on engagement with the outside world. Part of the problem is declining demand as the U.S. and the West slow as well. And part of it is blowback against things that China has done that the U.S. and others see as profoundly unfair trade practices, whether it's IPR piracy, intellectual property rights piracy, which we just saw Kudlow this morning talking about uh, possible theft from Apple, uh, or whether it's... uh, sort of what, what people see as a tilted uh, playing field for foreign companies operating. It's a long list of, of complaints here from the Trump administration, and we're now seeing the meetings, vice ministerial meetings coming up this week in China. I'm not terribly hopeful of a breakthrough there. But for Xi, I think the challenge is how much. The question is, the strategic question is, how much do you do something that will satisfy uh, foreign uh, complaints, uh, particularly coming from the U. S., which you can do perhaps on the cheap, versus how much do you undertake structurally to address some of these problems. Right
0: you know it's I, I totally agree um my assessment is china will reform only in ways that will benefit china you know if you know, if it's for the purpose of mending international relationship, they will do it. But more importantly, whether it's good for China in the long run. Um, you know, you can talk with the IP lawyers in Silicon Valley and ask them how difficult it is to implement a strong IP sure, enforcement. Right? Yeah, if yeah. it's a big issue in in the U.S., not to mention China. So <laughs> international policing is not going to help. Right, China will please its IP uh, regime only if it's in the interest of China to do so, and and talking about the stealing, you know, one thing again, I'm I'm all for stronger IP protection. I study IP, and I think it's very important for China to revamp its IP system, which is already ongoing. And if you look at the centralized IP court, uh, they're making a lot of progress on that. Um, but on, on the other hand. There's a very vague line between learning, imitation, and stealing. Right? right? Okay. Um, China has been trying to learn foreign technology for a long, long time. It didn't work. It's not like in the early days, China didn't "quote unquote" steal. But I can hold, uh, I can hand you all the blueprints and all the technology. Then, can you build a car out of it? Okay, I bet you can't, right? Right, yes, probably not. And I not. can yeah. hand you all the Qualcomm technology and try to build a phone out of it. Can right. you do it? No. Right. So there's a lot of R and D effort behind it, and there's a lot of he says she says kind of argument, the U.S. said you're stealing everything from us. And again, I'm not defending China, but I'm trying to provide another perspective. And China claims that we spend so much on R&D and we are building up our R&D capacity. So, um, you know, the discussion is also the understanding, the mutual understanding of where things sit.
2: It it sounds like that it's probably somewhere in the middle then. That obviously you do have an element of R&D that is going on with Companies in China, ZTE, Huawei, you you can run through Mm -hmm. the list of companies, Mm -hmm. but there's also probably an element of of the stealing that's a factor in this as well.
0: Yeah, so the, the challenge is to reach coordination, to give China the incentive to police the stealing part. My fear is, you know, having a blanket accusation of stealing on everything that's going to piss China off and reduce its incentive yeah. to, to place itself. As I said, IP is a very tricky issue. You cannot remote control or remote manage. Sure. So the only way for China to improve its IP system is to show it's in its own interest. Um, Yeah. So we'll see how the negotiation can go in that kind of mutual beneficial angle.
2: So I I guess, Jacques, then if if there is a need to have something on the table for China to police its IP in a better format, can that potentially come in these negotiations that we hope will be going on sometime in the next few weeks?
1: Well, it's certainly going to be one of the key topics. I mean, I think we've seen uh, gradually the Trump administration place greater emphasis on the intellectual property side rather than what had been just a laundry list of issues. Uh, And so that's certainly at the forefront. And I think one needs to read perhaps Kudlow's statement about Apple uh, technology theft by China as being the sort of next salvo in this. I think we have seen uh, more of a zeroing in on those issues, and that's certainly the issues that American business complains most about. I'm skeptical about it in two ways. One is, you know, we're well into that 90-day period that started with the meeting in Argentina, and not a whole lot has happened. We've now got, you know, a week into January, vice ministerial-level meetings. The clock is ticking toward March, uh, and there really is a lot on the agenda. And as Vinyan says, this, this is a very complicated set of issues. Even if you focus just on the intellectual property uh, parts. I guess some of this is a concern about American IP rights holders who make high-tech equipment. Apple's an obvious example, uh, where they're just concerned about the collapsing demand in China, and it's hard to figure out, or at least the slowing demand in China, it's hard to figure out what exactly is driving the slowing demand. Then you get complaints about what are essentially protectionist or mercantilist economic policies, where the complaints are there are policies that are not actually IP theft, but that benefit uh, domestic firms in a variety of ways and sometimes lead to pressure on foreign companies to license their technology as part of a price of doing business in China part of price of access and is that a government policy or is it hard bargaining often kind of hard to unpack then there's flat-out theft which we've talked about and then there are also complaints about China's industrial policy, the so-called innovation economy policy, the made in China uh, 2025 stuff, these things which are attempting to develop Chinese industries in the high tech sector, where the U.S. complains that that's kind of over the line in terms of permissible industrial policy. It's too much state intervention. And then we layer on top of that the concerns about security threats that the U.S. government has raised in terms yeah. of buying Chinese equipment, particularly the 5G stuff from Huawei. So it's a, even if you just look at IP related things and technology related things, it's quite a list. Yeah.
0: So I just want to add two points on the security side. You know, U.S. is blocking Huawei and and so on based on security threat uh, arguments. And China is doing exactly the same. Right. They're saying, look at the Snowden uh, cases. And if there is hard evidence that spying is, is going on, we need to develop our own system. And after ZTE, there's all these uh, strong incentives to develop indigenous technology, so that's one thing. And another is, um, when you look at the data, and I totally with, uh, agree with Zhong, the declining market share of foreign brands uh, can be attributed to many reasons, right? It yeah. can be due to the by U- by China only, you know, policies, home biases, and it can be due to simply stronger local competition right um the vw volkswagen was able to sell its santana brand for in china right. at 95% market share for like 15 years because there's no competitors. And over time with local competitors that come, came up, I bought a Huawei phone for my parents last time I visited because it offers better value. So um, it can be due to market competition. Again, you know, I'm not dismissing other factors, but right. uh, there are so many aspects uh, to to the same picture we're looking at.
2: And, and I guess to a degree, there there is an expectation probably by a lot of U.S. companies that mm-hmm. are either in the Chinese market or right. want to be in the Chinese market, mm-hmm. there's a certain level of expectation that they have of what those sales are going to be, right. especially when you're talking about a country of 1.4 billion people. Right. If you don't reach those numbers, it it, it, it it's not just because that, that there is an issue with the company. It mm-hmm. could be just the... the the feelings of the the people that live there.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, from the several industries I study, it's obvious that there is uh, some mismatch between the systems, the company protocols of the multinationals and the Mm -hmm. reality on the ground. The Chinese companies are a lot more flexible and they're willing to... um, to cater to those non-standard requests from the uh, customers a lot more than the foreigners. So, um, you know, it can be different institutional environment. It can be due to the fact that the multinationals has more at stake in reputation and so on. So on cost side, they cannot compete. Uh, it's it's a whole range of issues. So what I'm concerned of is when you read the media, right, you see the declining um market share and it's immediately attributed to protective.
2: You're yeah. listening to Knowledge of Cost. Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School, in studio with Minwan Zhao of the Wharton School and Jacques Delil on the phone of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't catch your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Jacques, one of the other areas of focus uh, is, is Chinese investment here in the United States, and that has obviously been cut back quite a bit in the past year, and I think the expectation is that uh, it will continue in 2019. From that perspective, is there any kind of, is there any brighter light showing that uh, that we could see a change if, in fact, we do get a better deal, uh, if we see a partnership between uh, China and the U.S. on, on trade?
1: I think it's certainly possible. I just, uh, before I answer that, I wanted to follow up on one thing uh, that yep. Yen said about the uh, the question of U.S. companies expecting to sell in China. I to take a, a step back on the somewhat uh, bigger picture view. We have a long history of uh, people believing if I can only sell one of my product, to everybody in China, right? That goes back sure. to the 19th century. And businesses are way more sophisticated than that. But I think the modern version of it is... China says it needs 7 or 8% growth, so China's going to get that 7 or 8% growth, and China has promised to open in a variety of ways. I think the U.S. businesses and the foreign businesses maybe were a little naive in thinking that was going to continue, so there's that romanticism. <clears throat> and you layer on to that another phenomenon we've seen certainly in 20th century China, which is... When Chinese nationalism gets poked, uh, consumers can engage in sometimes full-blown boycotts, but even short of that, shifting their preferences away from companies uh, that are associated with countries with which China has a bad relationship, and shifting toward domestic companies out of a kind of patriotic sense. And both of those things, again, subdued and more sophisticated, but they're still there. On the investment side, I think one of the ways we might see uh, limited progress on both the trade and investment side is uh, China also has a fairly long history, uh, and I think it understands that replaying the history might work with Trump, of doing something that is splashy, you know, making a big purchase, uh, doing some kind of investment that produces jobs. We've seen inklings of that in the uh, early phases of this kind of Trump and Xi era right. uh, trade frictions. So you could see something like that happening again. Uh, I doubt that it would be a really profound transformation. Uh, Partly, the concern here is is on the U.S. side. There's a great deal of concern about Chinese investment, partly for IP reasons, partly for market share reasons. But we've seen a toughening of the so-called CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. process. The legislation's gotten tougher. It's general legislation, but I think it's pretty well accepted that a big concern is with China coming in and buying up U.S. companies that have sensitive technology. Uh, So we have seen Chinese investment deals scrutinized uh, more closely than those from other countries, perhaps for good reasons, perhaps sometimes not for so good, so good reasons, but but just as a matter of the way certainly China perceives the investment climate in the united states there's a there's a sense of hostility toward uh, chinese investment
0: so uh, there has been three main reasons for Chinese investors to come here. one is to diversify their portfolio right so to balance their risks, especially when the institutional environment in china tightened up or shifted in the past few years, um, but that has been mainly blocked by the or more scrutiny on, on the banking system. And the second incentive is to learn foreign technology you know, right. We come here to buy some high tech companies to learn how they uh, operate, and that has been banned mostly by the U.S. side. Right? You know, getting a higher hurdle for anyone who sure. tries to buy uh, American technology, and the the third purpose is to expand the market to reach the U.S. customers, and. It, you know, As you can see in the Huawei phone case, and that has also been uh, barriers to that. So all three, we see barriers either erected by China or by the U.S., and right. it's no surprising the number is coming down.
2: And the market access, which you talk about in the scope of the United States, but mm-hmm. that's something that recently has been discussed in terms of China and maybe trying to open the markets a little better for, for companies coming in there and right. trying to work on uh, the issues of IP so that, Companies don't have to turn over so much when they go I- into the Chinese market. I think that is almost a kind of a let's wait and see until we actually get s- we move right. down the road a little bit here.
0: Yeah, I agree. And if China learns its lesson in the in the past forty years, industries that have um, experienced the best growth are the open industries. Yeah, competition really can make miracles. Um, but. Yeah, we'll see. But it's,
2: can that happen? It, it, Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah,
0: it can be scary at the beginning, right? right, to open up to the giants.
2: And can that change in terms of China with the, the scope of, of some of the state-owned companies mm-hmm. that are in that in, in that country as well?
0: Yeah, that, well... To answer that question, we're getting into the relationship between politics and economics, right? Right. It's one thing to maximize growth potential. It's another thing to uh, risk risk stability or the absolute control of the state sector in some so-called strategic areas.
1: Right. Jacques, your thoughts? I think that's right. And I think one of the things that makes a lot of this complicated is that it is hard to untangle how much of the problematic behavior – is being directed by the leadership by the party state and how much of it is just something that goes on. So if consumer preferences are for locally made brands, whether out of a sense of quality or fit with demand or uh, patriotism, you know that's one thing. If it is because of sneaky protectionism, we're not you know, in a world now where you slap a 40% tariff on goods coming in unless you're doing it as part of a trade war, which we're starting to see happen again. I, when you see IP theft and leakage, some of that is uh, Chinese firms behaving badly? Some of that is employees of Chinese firms behaving badly, and some of it is a sense that the state is not doing a very uh, assertive job of policing IP theft. And of course, since nobody expects zero, you know, what do you do with that? And then you work your way up the spectrum to the point where you've got state-linked actors hacking into uh, to foreign company of sensitive technology, and and and. Perhaps spreading to against the chinese firm, so there 's just this vast spectrum of activity it 's often hard to unpack exactly uh, what 's uh, going on it, it gets it gets to be quite um, difficult to essentially deal with problems of attribution and you see that on the the uh, view of Chinese equipment in, say, the 5G uh, technology sector coming through, too, with Huawei, ZTE, things like that. Um, I think nobody disputes that it is possible when it wants to for the Chinese leadership for the party state to put a lot of pressure on companies to have levers within companies. But the fact that it can occur and sometimes does occur doesn't provide a basis for uh, for inferring that it always does occur. So how do you handle these kinds of companies? And I think I said before on your show, I mean, I've done some work with Huawei on some of these issues. Yeah. Uh, and I think both sides get very frustrated. Um, and, you know, my view of this is, and the fact that it occurs sometimes doesn't mean it occurs all the time. And i said that in a variety of contexts. And the pushback always is, well, you can't say it doesn't ever occur. And, and, and so we get to the standoff. And unless you can get granular and show what goes on in individual cases, it gets very tough. As Minyan was saying, this quickly gets into politics. So you layer onto that the detention of the CFO of, of Huawei in Canada yep. uh, over the evasion of sanctions in Iran. You see several Canadians now being detained in China. You see the us uh, reaffirming what had already been on the books, but it's gotten more attention now, reaffirming a travel warning to American citizens, uh, largely because of exit bans on some uh, American citizens of Chinese background. Um, you you could you could see it spiral out very quickly.
2: 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So, I, Mimon, give us your kind of overview of where we should expect China to play out. And it may be very hard to do that right now because of the fact that we have so much unknown between China and the US at this point.
0: Well, I really see the silver lining of the trade war uh in, in China at this moment and you know, I've if- you know, I've been here in the studio for for uh, the past few years, and I was pessimistic about a lot of the rhetoric and uh, uh, the passion it was was on, but uh, if you pay attention to the recent policies, there is a lot of correction, and partly because the reality sinks right the yep. the uh, the reality of slower growth partly due to the the trade war is you know bringing back uh, the reality and uh, partly because of the the wider discussion the, the whole public is, is having about both politics and economics. So, And I think the, the next couple of years, particularly this year, will be a very decisive moment in which you know the public discussion as well as the policies we observe are morphing the, the future for China. But I think um, the reality will drive uh, the past instead of the rhetoric. Jacques, That's your thoughts? That's my assessment.
1: Uh, well, I hope my name is right, uh, and certainly there are good economic reasons to for both sides to try to work this out. I'm a little worried, actually a lot worried about the politics of it. Uh, I think that there tends to be a bit of a brinksmanship from the Trump administration on this, uh, again, sometimes for valid reasons. But I think they have made it hard for themselves to back down and compromise, and they've made it very hard for China to compromise rather than capitulate. I think that's a, that's a huge a uh, looming issue out there. Uh, and as we saw with Vice President Pence's speech, which got a lot of attention in China, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, there's a sense in, in China, and I think perhaps a legitimate sense, that the politics and the economics have become deeply entwined. So if you... Add in uh, concerns in the region about the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, China's outbound investment creating debt traps. If you add in all these frictions with the U.S. where we're talking about security-sensitive technology, you add in Xi Jinping's New Year's speech that was tougher talk on Taiwan, uh, concerns about the South China Sea. I mean, there's a whole bunch of points of friction. Are they manageable? Sure. Uh, But on almost every front, there's reason for concern.
2: Great having you on the phone with us, Jacques. Happy New Year to you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Meanwhile, great seeing you. Thank you for coming in.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.